0: Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 67 and continuing from where we left off in episode 66, we'll hear what Lieutenant Colonel John Graham was up to after he had defeated Ntlambi and Kungwa in the Zulfeld. It's also time to consider cosmology. So Graham's war in the Eastern Cape had sent the Amatosa hurrying eastwards over the Great Fish River with Ntlambi settling near where East London is today. Not surprisingly, however... The 1812 expulsions caused an increase in cattle raiding rather than more stability because the power of the chiefs had been removed from the area. While the British were putting their faith in the Rarabi chief in Nika, he was a weak leader and no longer appeared to represent the views of the Amatosa. By now, the local Landros Kaila and all British officials had preconceived notions of good in Nika, bad and Tlampe, to put it simply. They were going to be obstinate in their dislike of the latter, despite his repeated attempts at making a separate peace with the colony. He had fought wars against his nephew, and by now the British were taking sides in the Amatosa disputes. And Schlamby was to complain to colonial representatives that, ''We lived in peace. Some bad people stole, perhaps, but the nation was quiet. The chiefs were quiet. Inrika stole. His chief stole. His people stole. You sent him copper.'' You sent him beads. You sent him horses, on which he rode to steal more to us. You only sent commandos. And hand was strengthened by reconciliation with his son, Mdushani, and later the war doctor called Ngwele. As I mentioned last episode, Gramstein has been renamed after him as Makanda. That was in the 21st century. More about Ngwele in a moment. The great Amatpoza house east of the Kai began to experience a period of resurgence soon after Ntlumbi was dispatched across the Fish River. The Kalaka people had begun to recover from the internal squabbling of the late 18th century, from Kawuta's weakness, from their defeat by Ngika in 1795. By 1805, Buru, who was the right-hand son of Kawuta, spoke publicly about trying to fix the Kalaka, who had been bullied up to then by the Rarabe. Buru said, Let the people of different customs come together and the houses of the great place stand close whereupon the resistance of dissidents, led by Chief leader of the Chayello was overcome. Buru was playing an interesting game. He didn't claim power for himself, but threw his weight behind Kawuta's great son Hinsa, who was by far the most impressive figure in the whole history of the descendants of Chawe, the originator of amat as a people. Hinsa was one of those leaders who comes along every few generations in any culture and is much loved to this day. There are many reasons, but in a nutshell... He supported the poor in his territory. He was courageous in battle and wise in counsel. A bold man by his counsel will bring you into trouble, said Amatosa warrior Sarili later. Take care of pride. When a counsellor asks you for cattle, give him some, though your cattle are pretty, because through this thing your people will love you. Records show that Hinsa was also ruthless when it came to making sure that rich Amatosa got into line. It's a paradox that a chief with great herds supported the less advantaged amongst his own people. He was to rise to fame slowly through the next seven years in the Eastern Cape, but first we must assess what it meant to the frontier now that the Amarcoza had apparently been broken in the Zootveld. When Graham wrote those words, to attack the savages in a way which I hope will leave a lasting impression on their memories, to Governor Craddock, he had no idea of the demons he was going to unleash amongst both Amatposa and settlers in the Zufeld. The War of 1811 and 1812 was brief, but of unprecedented ferocity, as you've heard. The Amakosa chief's request to stay on until the summer crops were fully harvested was deliberately turned down. We chose the season of corn being on the ground, said Graham. Militarily, that was cunning. The British were punishing the Amatposa severely for years of instability, after the war Graham exulted that hardly a trace of a Koza now remains, almost all were killed or wounded. The war was marked by atrocities on both sides. The Amat had murdered Landro Stockenström by stabbing him in the back as he parlayed. The British troops had shot the elderly Tungwa as he slept. The army had shot women as well as men. The new order was to lay waste and total war was a novel and shattering experience for the Amatosa. The throwing assegai was not that effective as a killing machine and the purpose of ancient warfare was to abduct the enemy's cattle and women alive and then humiliate the men. The defeated would buy their time and if the situation arose would raid their enemies in turn. The trekboers were doing this, so were the Koi. There was a fluency and a rhythm and understanding, if you like, between all these three peoples of the field. War for the Amatosa had never been about destroying the resources, the crops, as the British had done. Rather, these were to be acquired and absorbed. The havoc wrought by the colonial forces was both cruel and incomprehensible. The Dutch had never indulged in such actions, but a new empire was in town. The British in African warfare, the defeated would be subjugated—a painful process of being bullied by the victors and then being incorporated into their society. But now, the Amakosa were rejected and expelled. Instead of the earlier Trekboer settlers integrating themselves to some extent in the rhythms of Amakosa and Khoikhoi life, the two cultures were now irreconcilably different. The Boers were now different people from their early Trekboer ancestors, who'd become African in many ways. Now they would try and reinforce their separateness, protect themselves, and initially they saw the British as allies, merely because they both were of European extraction. Damakosa also experienced what immense technical and material resources the British could call on, and instead of stabilizing the frontier, this had the opposite effect. It often happens where those who would always use violence first discover that their techniques are copied and tend to boomerang on them. For the amat who'd spent more than 150 years dealing with white travellers, hunters and trick boers, this foreign entity suddenly crystallised into an existential threat. There was no telling how far these colonists would go. It was quite a shock. The British had ethnically cleansed the zoo fields, Perhaps, thought the Amatosa, they'd be crossing the Kai River eastwards and would repeat their violence there. Who knew when they'd stop? How many were there? they seemed never-ending. This was one of the causes of the next century and a half of war between black and white and is a cruel irony that we still face today and clearly was to use this growing paranoia amongst the Amatosa to rally them around a new ethos with its motif to fight to the death as its core sentiment. Here they come. They have crossed the Kpakriwa. That's the Swakorps River. And they have crossed the Nkweba the Sundays River. Only one river more, then Kuba. That's the fish. And then they will be in our land. What will become of you then? said Ingele. The koi, koi had disappeared as they were broken up by the trekkers, and now they'd be next. Every knew that the future did not bode well. The expulsion created a number of problems for the chiefs as well, who had fled. In the years immediately following 1812, political leadership passed from the hands of the chiefs into the hands of prophet figures. As you know from contemporary politics, popularists are but like prophets. They lead with a simple message and have enablers that spread that message. In the first decade of the 19th century, it wasn't a simple switch from secular to the sacred or even a flight from reality, as historian Jeff Peres writes in his fantastic book called House of Paulo. It was now the time of war doctors, traditional medicine men and some women, These war doctors were ancient. They'd been credited over time with the ability to turn spears into water, and the people were searching for a solution to the colonists' guns. Perhaps war doctors could turn bullets into water too. Early and later in Tsikaina were war doctors who understood that a people under pressure needed to know their leaders had unfathomable magic powers which would help them provide rational answers to pressing questions, which were... Who were these white people? What did they really want? What should be done about them? Like all other religions, the amat belief system was logical enough, given the assumption that the unseen world is active and exercised influence on the visible world. That made the unseen world comprehensible. There were patterns of magic, and because of this, war doctors knew how to manipulate these patterns. They were inseparable from secular activity, in the same way that Graham had gone down on his knees to pray to his God after he survived that scare you heard about last episode when he had met in Columbia. On one level, the war doctors weren't metaphysicians blowing smoke and rolling bones, but psychological technicians who understood the mechanics of the unseen world. Rain magic and field magic were essential to a good harvest, so rituals should be followed to ensure success. The Amakosa were expert at experimenting with this. Remember, they tried to secure rain by using San and Koi Koi divaners. and when the missionaries arrived, they constantly asked them to pray for rain. Some Amakosa were judging to see if this Christianity business, the white cosmology, was more effective than their own rituals. There was even a school of thought amongst the Amakosa that favoured the San and Mfengu, merely because they came from the north, from where the rain seemed to originate. But this could lead to abuse. Take Kaleka for example, who was a sickly man and always killing people in the hope of making himself better. The fact that his health didn't improve did not prove to him that disease was not caused by witches. It showed him that the witch had not yet been caught. These diviners, or witch doctors, as they refer to in other cultures, are called to the office through a mystical experience characterized by symptoms which can be observed. The signs include paroxysms, dreams, fits, visions, visits by familiars like owls or cats. Often, these are ambivalent signs, not always from the dark side. Only a qualified diviner can tell the difference. The big problem for diviners in 1812 was that traditional cosmology had no place for white men, so a new formula dealing with this threat had to be found. If there was a solution, thought the war doctors, Surely it was hidden in the white cosmology, the Christian religion. At first, the Christian ideas most easily assimilated into the Amatkosa culture were those concerning God, the devil, creation, and the resurrection. Some of these had similarities in Amathosa cosmology already. The Khoi already believed in the first two, God and the Devil. And the San, the most ancient people on the felt, always believed in a single God, a supreme being. You can see his back at night, arching overhead. It's called the Milky Way. The San believed that is the spine of God. The Koi believed this too, and the Amatka had integrated that into their customs as a concept. The third notion creation made sense as Amat's ancient religion had it that man was created from a bed of reeds. It's not a giant step to a chunk of mud or a bit of rub. But it was the idea of a last judgment and resurrection that had the greatest impact, because this filled a gap in Amakosa belief. When you died and what happened afterwards had vexed the great diviners for probably thousands of years, now there was an answer. Up to now there'd be no satisfactory explanation for death, which was regarded as a product of witchcraft and impurity. So great was the horror of death among the Amakosa that after the terrible smallpox epidemic of the late 18th century, those dying of the disease were not cared for but driven from their homes into the bush. Then the relatives who survived had to undergo elaborate rites of purification before they were allowed back into the community. Later the missionary's message that the dead didn't really die but would rise again was received with joy, although some misunderstanding. When missionary James Reed preached this to the Amakosa, they demanded to see their grandfathers immediately. What was going to happen and would cause devastation and something called the cattle killing was a synthesis between the deeply rooted traditional worldview and the unseen world, which would combine Amakosa beliefs and Christian beliefs. Now we meet the war doctor who would bring this new message to his people and cause chaos along the frontier. Ngele was not from the Zulfeldt or even from among the Amakosa per se. He'd been born in the Cape Colony and was the son of a commoner who worked for a Boer farmer. He could speak Dutch and had a knowledge of Christianity and European ways and could mediate between the two cultures. He understood them. While a young man, he began to show symptoms of the calling of a diviner, but in an exaggerated way. He left his work and began living in the woods, refusing to eat prepared food because he said it had become unclean through the sins of the people. After he was circumcised somewhere early in the 1800s, he began to preach saying, forsake witchcraft, forsake blood, which was somewhat unusual for a diviner. Because he'd shown signs of madness, he was tied up and a rope was placed around his neck by his own family. Then a man called Kalanga suggested that Naili was no ordinary madman and told those around him to remove the rope. From then on, Nghele thought that his deliverance from bondage, from being tied up, was attributed to the intervention of Christ. Word began to spread about Nghele, and he was taken to meet Nflambi, shortly after the Amat had been forced out of the zoo Pharaoh had thrown out the Israelites, and now they had found their Moses. Apparently, Nflambi was not completely taken in by Nghele, but now his people were pushed out of their ancient lands, and he was willing to take a chance with new powers so he allowed Ingle to set up his own great place nearby and offered him cattle. Nghele declined the cattle, but took up the resettlement offer. Nghele was not against whites of the colony at this point. In fact, the opposite. He was inspired to seek the source of their power. And it was now that Lieutenant Colonel Graham's new frontier military posts were going to intersect with the life of Nghele in a novel way. Governor Craddock had ordered Graham to establish a new military headquarters in the Zürfeld, and Graham took the young Andri Stockenstrom along with him to find a suitable spot. They settled on an abandoned Boer farm set inside a bowl of high-rising hills 20 miles from the Great Fish River, 40 miles from the sea, and 86 miles from the existing military headquarters at Jutenhage. Work began at once on preparing temporary accommodation for officers, men and horses, And a few months later, Governor Craddock decided to name the post Grahamstown. In respect for the services of Lieutenant Colonel Graham, through whose able exertions the black tribes had been expelled from that valuable district, he announced. A short while later, he accorded a similar honor to Jacob Kyler. The Zutfeldt was renamed the District of Albany after Kyler's birthplace of Albany, New York in America. Missionary John Campbell traveled to the town after the Amakosa had been expelled and described the desolation around Grahamstown. It was Beautiful in the extreme, much resembling a nobleman's park in England, the sides of the mountains covered with kosa gardens, the skeletons of many of their houses remained, and some tobacco was still growing, but all their cornfields were destroyed. Not a living soul, but stillness reigns. Not for long. Governor Craddock, meanwhile, was in the British Secretary of State's bad books. Lord Liverpool had responded coolly to Craddock's letter that he had moved against the Zufault Amatosa, saying, It must be quite unnecessary for me to point out the impolicy of a systematic warfare with the black nation, and I am convinced that the general interests of the settlement would be better promoted by taking measures of precaution against the marauders. He went on to warn Craddock to show, Utmost humanity to the misguided natives, and then he wrote From one of the letters you have transmitted leaves every ground for apprehension. As we know, Craddock and Graham had indulged in the complete opposite, they had ethnically cleansed a part of Africa. Graham wrote back to Lord Liverpool saying The whole of the black tribes had been expelled from his Majesty's territories, being careful not to reveal the manner by which this had been achieved. By mid-march, Lord Liverpool had been replaced by Lord Bathurst, who reprimanded Craddock in 1812 for allowing the troops to march away from Cape Town. He also warned that, No acts of severity be committed. Well, it was too late for that. Craddock was very upset by the government's point of view. It had been necessary to take this sort of action. The weakness we had evinced would only have added contempt to the operation of their thirst for plunder and other savage passions. You see, in Britain at this time, luddites were breaking machines and being hanged for it. There were 200 offences in England for which you could be hanged. Rioters were being hanged for treason. Pitt's anti-Jacobin repression of the late 1790s would eventually lead to a more humanitarian government by the end of the Napoleonic Wars, but right now, Craddock's extremism was safe. There was a need to drub Britain's foes, and if you can hang a 14-year-old for stealing a shilling in London, then shooting an Amakoz in Albany was par for the course. But nature has a way of upending human planning, and drought is always an instigator of trouble. And one of the most severe was on its way. Towards the end of 1813, the Boers began to warn from Graaf Reynet that the heavens are like sheets of copper and the earth a single thirst. While for the Amat whose cattle and crops were gone, everything had compounded and they were starving. Naturally, they escalated their cattle raiding, which Graham reported had increased sharply, so much for quietening down the Zootfeld. His response, of course, was to call up another commander under Captain George Fraser, who you know had assisted Graham in the Fourth Frontier War we heard about last episode. Andri Stockenström was to be his deputy this commando was going to kill children and that would haunt Stockenström for the rest of his life. Well, we must halt and throw a kudu kidney on the fire, crack open the rum barrel and light the lanterns. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time. If you have any comments or want to contact me, you can use the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. I'm also on Twitter. You can direct message me there at Des Latham. Until next sous